This sermon, The Main Thing, was preached by Tim Lambros on Sunday, July 24th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, Acts chapter 15. Now, if you're new around here, you know we typically stand for the reading of God's Word. We do that to bring some reverence in just a moment. Uh, We're trying to always have the pastors not talk and just read and let God talk. Uh, I'm just going to have you stand and do the first five verses. I saw Tommy read about 150 verses the other day, other week, and I thought, that guy can read the scriptures well and maintain it. I'm not that guy, so we're going to just read the first five verses, and then we will read the rest of the text as we get there. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Please take your seats. Lord, what a historic moment in the life of the church. What a historic and crucial moment that we are reading in the book of Acts. And we know, Lord, there will emerge from this Jerusalem council great clarity amongst the leaders, amongst the members, amongst the churches. And I pray for that clarity in our church today also. Lord, use this very imperfect messenger to bring what the church 2,000 years ago enjoyed. Bring it today for us. Grant this request, I would pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, Scott Crepain wrote a music album in 1995 titled Wild Imagination. Now, if you're about 35 years or younger, a music album that you call a vinyl now was a large, round, disc-like thing that you would put on what we called a turntable, and it would rotate 33 revolutions per minute and play music. If you need to learn more about this, just check out someone born 1970 or earlier, and we can tell you about what that whole generation was about. And typically, you bought an album because you liked one or two or three songs, and all the rest just came along with it. So I don't know how this album uh, sold, but the number eight song on that album was titled The Main Thing. And some of the lyrics read like this. 
I forgot to print this. How do I look? What do I wear? What will they think? Why should I care? Where should I go? What should I do? How should I live? What's it to you? These are the questions that compete for my attention. I know there's one thing they always fail to mention. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And on and on the song goes. Well, a pastor of a local church heard his daughter playing this album in their home. And that phrase, the main thing, is to keep the main thing, caught his attention. And this pastor had some truths crystallized in his mind during this season, kind of a light bulb moment. And he began to use this phrase to make some truths very clear to his church. Well, this pastor was leading a small group of growing and expanding churches called People of Destiny International. They shortened that name to PDI and eventually became Sovereign Grace Churches. And this local pastor was C.J. Mahaney. And in in 2000 and 2001 at the pastor's conference and the small group leaders conference, he preached a series of messages titled... The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And a whole bunch of pastors like the one you're looking at here and the ones that are sitting on this front row had some clarity and light bulb moments go off that went back and served their local churches with gospel-centered preaching that I pray 22 years later is still occurring and bearing fruits. But 2,000 years before the events of those pastors' conferences and small group leaders' conferences, God was doing a similar but very historic work, a profound work in another set of small but growing and expanding set of churches, and that's the chapter we're looking at this morning But I want you to make sure you don't overlook that God is the one helping the early church. Some churches, primarily Jewish with a few Gentile Christians. Other churches, many more churches, primarily Gentile with Jewish Christians. Helping them to keep the main thing, the main thing. This is a work of God, first and foremost, that we're going to celebrate in this 35 verses of Acts chapter 15. So the clear one sentence way to understand this part of the book of Acts is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. But it answers a fundamental question that the churches were wrestling with. How does one get Saved. Seems simple 2,000 years later. Very much a wrestling match in this early season of God growing the church. How do sinners receive forgiveness of their sins? How does someone get acceptance with God? Very profound and fundamental and crucial questions that you do not want to be fuzzy on. You want crystal clarity in answering these types of questions. So 
So I'll break this part of Acts down in three points. Verses one through five, we're going to talk about the threat. The threat to the gospel and answering this question. Then we'll look at the defense of the gospel, the defense of the main thing, and then we'll look at the effect of gospel clarity in the end. Let me draw your attention again. This is a profound statement in chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, unnamed men, unnamed people. We've, we've seen this before. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's drawing a line in the sand. Now again, when you hear Judaizers, they would readily say, oh, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We believe in Jesus. But unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. So what's at stake is of huge importance. What's at stake doctrinally is of monstrous proportions here. How is God saving people? How do people who were formerly enemies of God become accepted by God with forgiveness of sins? So Paul and Silas are out in Gentile churches teaching that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Others are teaching, oh, I believe in Jesus. It's Jesus plus the law of Moses. And huge ripple effect depending on where this goes. So let's back up all the way back to Acts chapter 1. Remember, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria. And here we are in Acts 15. We're way out in Antioch. I'm going to the ends of the world, but not without problems, not without challenges. There's skeptics constantly coming at every city from Jerusalem, watching what's going on, pushing their agenda. You, just, you saw just in last week's chapter 14, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, trouble. Paul being stoned, he looked like he was left for dead. This is not an easy growth of this group of churches. And yet Paul and Barnabas are out here with many more Gentiles and Gentile churches being planted, not enforcing the law of Moses. There are real problems in this wrestling match, attempting to answer the question, how does God save? Is it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is it Jesus plus, G grace plus Jesus? Because again, as they're debating, and you see Luke's way of saying it, there was no little dissension the Judaizers, the Jews are saying, yes, grace, faith, Jesus, plus the law, plus circumcision. So just to kind of take yourself there, we're 2,000 years, there's a lot of teaching and a lot of help for us, so it's easy for us to not really see what's going on. But 
if you are now in a church and you're a Gentile, you're starting to befriend a Jewish person, you're going to church together, you like him, you like her, nice person, you've been there, serious doctrinal differences. So the Jewish person would open up, and go, go read it this week, open up his Bible to Genesis, uh, what is it, 17? Genesis 17, and would read verses 9 through 14 and says, look, I've got it written right here. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be part of God's family. This is a powerful argument for a new believer, don't you think? That if you want to read how Paul would argue, just jump over to Galatians chapter 1. Whew, I would not want to debate Paul. <laughs> We're not exactly sure when Galatians 1 was written, but it's probably in this time frame. There, there, there's certainly some debate uh, out there. But when Paul writes to the church in Galatians, he basically says, uh, you know, let's turn over there. We, we got time. Let's turn over. I, I want you to see this. This, this would be Paul arguing. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hi, how's it going? Hope things are great. Verse 5, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just picture Paul yelling this. He is making his case. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's Paul debating. We're saved through faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So when we're talking about debate and dissension, we're talking about voices getting louder. It sounds like it happened here. Look at verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had small, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, scholars aren't sure if these unnamed people that are showing up saying they're sent from Jerusalem, if that's just a small faction or if there's a lot of people in that camp, we don't know. But they show up almost everywhere, further emphasizing what a difficult problem this is for the early church. Could be a small, loud minority. It could be a large faction. But look at verses 4 and 5. Paul and Barnabas now get to Jerusalem and some other leaders. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so you have this group now in the mother church, now in Jerusalem, that are voicing this same doctrinal concern that you're saved. Yes, we believe in Jesus, but you must continue to practice circumcision and, in fact, the entirety of the law of 
Moses. So note that the church sends them to Jerusalem, Paul, Silas, and the leaders. And then as you take a helicopter view of this, God is assembling leaders that in no other way in the book of Acts are assembled like this. Probably all the apostles are there. Many church planters are there. Paul and Silas bring their leaders, probably the elders of some of the churches in Antioch and beyond. There's local elders from the Jerusalem church. And in fact, if you study this closely, the whole church there in Jerusalem is attending this conference. This is a very high point in the book of Acts and very appropriately so. So let's now look at point number two, the defense. I'm gonna read verses six through 10. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between them, us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter, great example of first amongst equals. Somehow, I don't know if they did Robert's Rules of Order back then, but somehow he stands up and he has the attention of the group. So we've moved from debate and dissension to now they are listening to Peter. Like I mentioned, this is a superstar, all-star, whatever you want to call it. These are all the main people in Christianity that day gathered up together. So there's a lot of debate. And as we look closer at verses eight and nine, Peter's most likely referring to his experience with Cornelius. If you remember a couple of, of chapters ago, these, these words look similar to how he testified. But in verse eight, he says, and God who knows the hearts bore witness to them. Peter's calling upon God himself in his testimony. God bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinctions between them and us. What Peter's doing here is saying, look, because remember, the New Testament isn't written yet. So, so what are Paul and Silas and now Peter backing them up? How are they going to defend their position? Hey, we got black and white. We got the Old Testament. How are you going to beat that? And the way they argue it is, look, God is saying, I saw it with Cornelius in his household. God is saving people by the word of the gospel and belief in their hearts. No mention of adherence to the law. And again, if you study the nation of Israel, there was room for Gentiles in the Old Testament. How did they become a part of the family of God? They came into the community of Israel. They got circumcised, and they began to practice the law of Moses. And they were part then of the people of God. But Peter's gonna say some very profound things. And Peter, with the Cornelius experience, and then the explosion of the Gentile churches, 
are seeing the gospel preached, grace, faith, the human instrument that God gives people to grab a hold of this gospel and preaching Christ and Christ alone. And through that message, people are getting saved as evidenced by the Holy Spirit filling them just like he did us back in Acts chapter one. That is their point. Don't test God in what he's doing. He's gonna eventually say here. So all the people are hearing this, uh, that they are out there, they're seeing this, not just in Peter's life, but Paul and Silas uh, is seeing it too. But, but I wanna draw your attention to something that is extremely intentional and, and, and profound on Peter's part. He said, and at the end of verse eight, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and then verse nine, and God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Nothing else is mentioned. God cleansed their hearts. God brought them into the family of God. God forgave their sins. God accepted them by faith at the heart level. And then this, this, this verse 10, now, therefore. Remember the assembly. Now, therefore. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you testing God by bringing this yoke? Rabbis would use the word yoke. They would have immediately heard that this yoke is every aspect of the law. Jesus would say, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So there would have been an understanding there that we might not have in an English-speaking translation of the Bible. But they would have got, why are you putting this yoke all the aspects of the law when God is doing something differently. And then at the end there, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What's he, what's he getting at there? Peter understands grace. Peter understands the place of the law. He's not speaking ill of the law. He understands that Based upon the law, we could never live it perfectly and never attain acceptance by God through obedience to the law. Our works would never be good enough to be accepted. Our fathers couldn't bear it. We couldn't bear it. No, God saved back then and God saves now by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is the main thing, people. And then I don't know if verse 11 was his last statement, but verse 11 has a very much a teaching element and very much an impactful element to it. But before I read it to it, I, I, I want you, I get this sense that, that when Peter references his, the, our fathers and us, It's kind of like the guy that uh, coined the phrase, you know, what's the definition of insanity? You keep doing the same thing and you expect something different. 
Peter's saying, do we want to keep doing the same thing when obviously God is doing things according to grace, through faith in Christ the Messiah alone? And Peter, of course, with the mention of this word yoke, Peter felt the law crush him numerous times when he failed, especially the three years he was with the Savior, especially when Jesus was in the trial and he denied him three times. So none of those zealots, none of those Judaizers would know the crushing effects of the law like Peter. So he's speaking with great conviction that we do not want to put this yoke on the Gentile believers. We couldn't bear it. And why do we want to test God and do that? But let me draw your attention to verse 11. This is so profound. This is, well, let me just read it. But we believe, we, us Jewish believers, us Jewish Christians, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We believe God's plan for those of us that were raised up Jewish is the same as God's plan for the Gentiles. We believe, you see what happened? Let me just capture this. You see what's going on here? God saves Gentiles and it teaches Peter and Jewish people how God saves, how they missed it how their fathers missed it. We were trying to be Pharisees and we were trying to live perfect lives so God could accept us. We missed it. And now he says in a very profound way, we're gonna be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The main thing, people, is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And Peter is saying, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So things are getting crystal clear. Peter, in a backdoor way, is saying, I utterly reject what these false teachers are doing. And what a beautiful thing it is. Whether you're Jew or Gentile or for us, black, white, rich, poor, higher socioeconomic, lower socioeconomic, whether you're born in a Christian home or born in a pagan home, you're saved through God's grace. You're saved with the instrument of faith that's a gift from God, and you're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus the law. And historically, this really is a pivotal moment in Peter's life. Martin Hengel writes, the, the legitimation of the mission to the Gentiles is virtually Peter's last work. That's why I wanted to get Acts 1.8 on your radar again. We're not gonna hear from Peter again. He's legitimizing what God is doing, not that God needs him to legitimize, but to these people that he has influence over, and we're not gonna hear from Peter again. But what a great way to exit the book of Acts. The gospel is going out to all parts of the world. 
way beyond Jerusalem, way beyond Judea and Samaria. And after this event, we will see the gospel go and turn the known world upside down. So this moment couldn't be more important, couldn't be underestimated in the life of the church. How you understand this fundamental question of how God saves influences every other aspect of your Christian life. But let's step back for a moment. Let's ask this question. Why is there in human nature this desire to always include our works? If you're new to the term, the law, circumcision, that would be the law of Moses. For you and I, it would just be works. It's Jesus plus my obedience is how I'm accepted, how my sins are forgiven. It's Jesus plus how well I'm doing in my walk with the Lord. Why is it in human nature that we always want to kind of just sneak our actions in there so we can have a little bit of credit before the Lord? It is an inherent sinful bent in all humankind. And I'm going to give you an assignment here so you can have a fresh experience of this sometime in the next week or month. Go ask 10 people. When you die and go to heaven and God meets you at the door, use the whole St. Peter thing if you like that, and St. Peter meets you there, why would, they, why would God let you into heaven? And I'll bet you a lunch. Should I be betting from the pulpit? I'll buy you a lunch that nine out of 10 people in America, because the biggest religion in America is if I live a good life, I'm gonna go to heaven. That's the biggest religion in America. Nine out of 10 will say, well, you know, I'm working hard to be a good dad. Uh, I've never killed anyone. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to get that promotion at work. I'm really trying to love my wife. Work after work after work after work. Why would God let you into heaven? Because of my works. I'm trying really hard. And God is a loving God. And he forgives sins, accepts you into his kingdom, reconciles all of your sins by you trying hard to do good works. That's America's religion. So go do that and have a fresh experience of how it's just innate for people to want to boast of their works. We've even created a new word, humble brag. They're gonna humble brag about their works. Now here's a, here's a scarier one. Ask 10 born-again Christians. They're born again. Hopefully they understand. Grace, faith, Christ alone. You ask 10 Christians, why you've been praying for healing, you've been praying for your teenager to get saved, you've been praying to get out of that miserable job, why would God answer your prayers? Oh, man, I've been faithful at my church. I've been praying for this for months, going on year. Works, works, works. Christians will smuggle in the reasons why God should answer their prayer because of their works. It's just in our nature. But what God is establishing here is Christ lived a perfect life. He did all the good works perfectly, never failed, never sinned. He submitted to the Father's will. He had nails pounded unjustly into his hands, in his feet. 
He died on the cross. Why? So God would be just to take his perfect set of works and put them into your account. He would put his righteousness into your account so you no longer have to try the humble brag thing. (coughs) God saves us, forgives us, accepts us, reconciles us on nothing that we do but on Christ alone. And the minute you start to add in your works, we are in big trouble. Look at verse 12 now. There is really two fantastic reactions in this big assembly. And here's the first one. Remember before, there's much debate. And now look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. Remember who's at this assembly? You got some people with some strong opinions. You got some powerful leaders. All fell silent. No details are given. But guess what? Truth rings true. God is at work (coughs) doctrinally bringing clarity and unity. So the apostles, the elders, the leaders, the church planters, the members, Paul and Silas, God is helping the early church keep the main thing, the main thing, and they fall silent. Paul and Silas come up next. I won't have time to go into too much of this detail, but Paul and Silas again speak to what God is doing. Look, we've seen the word go forth. We've seen heart-level faith. We've seen people filled with the Holy Spirit. Nothing inside the law is occurring with these people, and God is saving them in droves out there in Gentile regions. Thank you, sir. All this is apart from the law. Apart from the law of Moses. And then James is next in the lineup. Now James is a very respected person in Jerusalem. He's the pastor there. First amongst equals. He's the brother of Jesus. And God's going to use him in a powerful way. Go read and study this closer. But James stands up. He affirms what Peter is saying. He affirms what Paul and Silas are doing. And he says this very interesting word, I'll say, in verse 19. Well, first of all, he, he, he basically roots his arguments in the Old Testament. We've heard from Peter. He had an experience with the Cornelius. He saw things. We've heard from Paul and Silas. He quotes in verses 16 and 17 this Old Testament truth that basically he's pastoring the group. Now he's saying, look. God is just doing what's consistent with the Old Testament. The ruins that occurred when Israel were punished are going to be restored. And Gentiles are going to be a part of it. So James reinforces everything, disavows, disenfranchises the Judaizers and says, no, this is very consistent with what God is doing. 
And then in his response, like, what are you going to do when you come out of a conference like this? What are you going to do when you have unity and clarity? And this is just the wisdom of God through a pastor. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble those. What, 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 what is James getting to? Well, God knows that all of us have this innate desire to boast about our works. It's inherited from Adam. It is pride. It, it is, we're all wired that way. None of us are immune from it. And what's the trouble James wants to avoid? It's called legalism. It's called legalism. If we don't keep the main thing, the main thing on how people are saved, we're going to create these card-carrying legalists in our churches. Here's a brief but profound definition of legalism. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Great illustration for the younger kids that are with us today. Listen, you're called to obey your mom and dad. When you have a bad day and you get in a lot of trouble, your status in that family doesn't change. You're just in your room a lot. Similar to the believer. We are forgiven. We are accepted. We are, we are reconciled back to God. Not through our Christian obedience. That's a different topic. By grace. Through faith in Christ alone. Is obedience in the Christian life important? Absolutely it's important. But that's not the basis on how we are saved. God forbid if we're going to be saved by my horrible obedience over 41 years walking with the Lord. That's a pitiful proposition. I'll take grace of the cross of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness put into my account. I'll take the instrument of faith, which is a gift of God too, and I will fall upon the cross of Jesus Christ any day compared to trying to have a standing before God based upon my good works. The reason I say obedience is a different category. It's not that it's unrelated to your standing before God, but you must have crystal clarity on your position before Christ before you start to get after obedience, or you will be confused and in trouble like James says, God justifies you by the perfect work of Jesus Christ, and that alone. Don't try to smuggle in there. Look at me, look at me. I've been reading my Bible every, this is the fifth year in a row I've read the Bible through law, Lord. There's huge impl implications if that's how you're relating to the Lord so this might be a review for some of you, but this is always helpful. Listen, when you're talking about justification, when you're talking about how you're saved, you're talking about your position before God, not your practice 
of Christianity. It's your position that God does a monergistic work in your life and establish you as a child of God when you're born again. In that moment, God declares you righteous. I was a big fat loser. Well, I was a little skinnier back then. I was a loser in college. God saved me. Some of us have one of those point in time you can remember. Others, it's gradual, doesn't matter. In God's eyes, he declares you righteous. I believe it was December 15th, 1980, that I was declared righteous. Before and after that moment, I was not any more actually righteous. 41 years later, I'm not as holy as Tom Wilkins. I'm not as holy as Donna Overstreet. But God declared me righteous once and for all. My position before God changed. And I've been practicing Christianity for years. My justification was an objective work of God in my life. Every believer, this is an objective. This is why it's so important that we're clear on this. Growth is subjective. How many times have you been in a community group? Hey, how are you doing on the spiritual disciplines? I think I'm getting better. That's subjectivity. You don't ever have to think, I think I'm in right standing with God. No, it's objective. Growth is subjective. Obedience is subjective. Your justification is immediate, and it is complete. Thanks be to God. You can say amen at that point. Justification is never a progressive work. Another great quote from this outstanding book that probably everyone in this church has a copy of it, and if you don't, we will get you one. William Plumer, justification is an act. It's not a work or a series of acts. It's not progressive. (coughs) The weakest believer and the strongest saint are alike equally justified. Some of you feel like a weak believer today? You don't have to raise your hand. You're equally justified. Is anyone else in this room? Justification admits no degrees. A man is either wholly justified or wholly condemned in the sight of God. Obviously, these things are developed in the epistles, but God is bringing clarity to the church that your status before God, your position before God, this objective work, this immediate and complete work is done by grace through faith in Christ alone. Back to our text. James is a pastor. He's going to give some instructions. I'm going to read verses 22 through 29, but we won't take a whole lot of time. But basically, they make some decisions They're going to send everybody out, but there's one piece in here that can be confusing. So I want to read through verses 22 through 29. Maybe I should have Tommy come up and read it because he's a good Bible reader. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, 
and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So James says, we're going to write up a letter. We're going to send it out to all the churches. We want to be unified. But as you read that, you can think, wait a minute. We just talked about not putting a yoke on the Gentile believers. We just talked about uh, grace alone, you know, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, now it looks like he's putting on requirements. What's he getting at? Well, clearly, he's not saying your relationship with God is based upon how you do in these activities. Clearly, they just made that case very strongly that your status before God is not based upon your obedience to the law. What he's doing here is, listen, Jews and Gentiles, these are culturally clashing. We heard this last week. Culturally clashing entities coming together. Table fellowship was very important in the first century church. And if my Gentile brother comes to the church potluck because it's their time to, to, to bring the meat and he's slopping up a pig and, and I've understood that my obedience to the law is not how I have right standing with God, but I still like the law. I think it's meaningful. I can worship God through the law. I'm just not basing my relationship. We're going to have some real trouble at table fellowship. And so James very wisely now that the Jews have learned something from the Gentiles, he's going to ask the Gentiles to give up some preferences for the sake of fellowship. Listen, if you're saved by grace through faith in Christ, you're called to love one another. And this is just an act of love amongst the Gentiles for table fellowship. So he says, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. You can give that up for the sake of fellowship. And from blood, there's some people out there that would be very difficult to to uh, have a meal with you, and from what has been strangled, those are all parts of the law, and from sexual immorality, that's not necessarily rooted in the law like these eating, but sexual immorality was rampant in these cities. This was going to be very difficult to have fellowship with one another. And so James wisely goes from position now to practice. He wisely establishes how we're saved to how we're going to live together and fruit was born in these churches as these pastors returned. So let's now look at <clears throat> the effect. What's the effect of this gospel clarity? What's the effect of defining just what is the main thing here? So let's read verses 30 through 35. <clears throat> 
So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered in the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. One more element here. You've got to just put yourself in their shoes. Antioch to Jerusalem was about a 15-day journey. Of course, Paul and Silas are stopping and preaching the gospel. These believers in these Gentile churches might have been waiting months going Am I truly saved? Am I a Christian? Do we have it all wrong? Where are these guys? You can just feel their anticipation when these guys come back because it might have been three months that they are living with these unanswered questions. And what is the effect of gospel clarity? I love these four words. Rejoicing. Truth rings true. And they are rejoicing. He uses the word encouragement two times. When you're clear on the gospel, when you're clear on the main thing, it's very encouraging. Strengthening. They're actually getting equipped, probably resulting in more boldness. And they send the folks back to Jerusalem, and they are at peace. Rejoicing. Encouragement. Strengthening. Peace. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a believer, the gospel has a lot of this for you. If you've been living the American religion where you think you live a good life and God will accept you based upon your hard work and efforts, you are mistaken. I would rather offend you now and tell you that right now, if you're unsaved, you are a sinner Not looking forward to the righteousness of God, but you are a sinner headed towards the wrath of God. But God in his graciousness sent his son who lived the perfect life according. He actually fulfilled the law in every letter. Died an unjust, gruesome, ugly death. So like Romans 3 says, God would be just to take that righteousness and put it into your account You embrace that by faith. You embrace that by trusting in the work that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And when that's clear in your mind, you can look forward to rejoicing, encouragement, strengthening, peace, and a whole lot more. I'm sure there's people here today that will talk to you if that's a concern of your status or position before God. Two points of application. One, grow. That's the best way to say it. You don't just get the gospel and stay status, static. We can grow. Don't assume you're crystal clear on the gospel, on the main thing. You must work at keeping the main thing, the main thing. We must grow in our understanding and appreciation and grow our passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Numerous ways to do this. Obviously, sitting under gospel center preaching is huge for your diet, but on your own personal world, 
I, I, I resurrected my list. I challenged a guys, couple guys over the years to build a top 10 single verse gospel places you can go in scripture. For example, and memorize them. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a single verse that captures the gospel. Build 10 of those. Memorize them. Put them in your heart. Why? Because that's a great defense when that inner legalist starts to speak to you. And you can draw those up no matter where you're at because they're in your soul. I call that the elementary school of growing. High school, find a handful of paragraphs that preach the gospel. My favorite is Romans 3, 19 through 26, a very rich paragraph that preaches the gospel to my soul. When I'm trying to sneak in how good I've been and stand upon that before the Lord, that knocks me down very quickly. Romans 3, 19 through 26. Have a handful of those And then if you want to get into the college master's degree level, preaching the gospel to yourself, go dig up a few narratives that proclaim the gospel clearly. My favorite is Genesis 15. It's just a fantastic, with some weird elements of the gospel being preached between God and Abram. This week, Paul Tripp sent out an email blog post kind of thing and he talked about the glories of an oak tree. And I, that, that, that picture has just resonated in my mind all week long. They take decades, sometimes centuries to grow. But the storms that come don't knock it over. It is stout. It is strong. It's not a little sapling that gets blown around. That's what we want the main thing in our lives. Gospel clarity and continuing to remind and work on it will grow that oak tree deep into the ground. Secondly, guard. Guard your heart from the inner legalist that lingers every day. It lives with you. It's always there. A couple of symptoms. If you quietly live with a low grade of guilt, guilt is different than conviction. If you quietly live with low grade of guilt in your Christian walk. If you lack joy, you might have what I call morphed legalism. What's morphed legalism? Morphed legalism is when you confess, oh yeah, we're saved by grace through faith, Christ alone. That's the way God saves people. But my functional life is that it's based upon my works. So you hear in fellowship and hospitality and community a lot of, well, I, I should be doing more. I, I should be, I should be, I should be. Might be, might be a case of morphed legalism. If that's you, immediately drop anything you're reading and studying and get crystal clear on the difference between justification and sanctification because you are walking around in muddy waters and it's not going to be fruitful so grow and guard are your assignments and say it with me because what does God want us to do to keep the the main thing I said it wrong what is your main thing no our main thing is to 
Amen. Let's pray.